0: Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever then i saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire.
1: Father, uh, we are thankful for your word. And Lord, thankful that you uh, are intent on telling us what is true, even when it's hard to hear. So Lord, as we uh, dive into it this morning, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you'd be speaking to us, that you'd be teaching us about yourself, and that you'd be helping us uh, to know and to love you more. We pray these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Amen. So guys, in Revelation, uh, in this chapter, in verses 7 through 10, we get this kind of first uh, powerful image that John unpacks or unfolds for us that we're going to talk about this morning. And the battle that unfolds is the battle that we ha- have often talked about or like talked about in popular culture as Armageddon. Okay? This is one of the passages that describes that battle. There are actually three different places in Revelation that talk about a final climactic battle in which Jesus wins an ultimate victory. That battle is talked about in Revelation 16, it's talked about in Revelation 19, and it's talked about here in Revelation 20. That these nations come together from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, they're gathered for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So this image, is, it's as if you, you zoom up and you're, and you're looking from above and there are just hordes of people, masses and masses that are coming around this plain, pouring through and surrounding the city of God and God's people. And it's, it's a moment that feels uh, almost hopeless. A moment that feels that uh, it, it feels like there's just nothing but to spare. And this battle, this final climactic battle, what you've got to recognize is that this is the, the end, the final battle that, uh, of the war that has been being waged throughout all of the pages of Scripture. That the beginning of this war that we see coming to a close in Revelation 20 is a war that started all the way back in Genesis 3. Because here's what, here's what Genesis teaches us. Here's, it kind of unfolds for us the story of scripture that God uh, in his grace and providence and, and desire to share out of his abounding love uh, created the world. And he created this beautiful creation and he stocked it with all the raw materials needed for the king and the queen that he created in this world, Adam and Eve, to rule over it and to take those raw materials and make something beautiful, to draw out of it all of its potentiality. And in the middle of that space, uh, the enemy infiltrated. The enemy infiltrated and he came and he started lying to Adam and to Eve, to the king and the queen of this world. And he persuaded them to rebel against God. And that in that rebellion, evil gained a foothold. It gained a foothold in the world and it gained a foothold in in the human heart. That evil broke God's creation and it, 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 it touched everything. And yet, God in that moment said, I am not content to leave the world like this. That I love my world, my people, and my creation too much to leave it surrendered to evil, to leave it surrendered to the enemy, to leave it surrendered to Satan. And so God made a promise. He said, I'm gonna do something about this. And we get that promise in Genesis 3 Verse 15, this is God speaking to the serpent, to the enemy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That what God is promising here is that all throughout the history of humanity, there's gonna be this war. There's gonna be an ongoing war between the seed of the woman through whom God's going to save the world and, there's, and, and between the serpent. There's gonna be an ongoing battle between seed and serpent. And what God is promising is one day the seed will crush the serpent and will get the victory. And God is saying, I am dedicated to that plan. I am promising you that that plan is gonna to come to completion. And then over the course of scripture, we see that battle unfold. Right, God, uh, he makes promises to a family, to the family of Abraham. And he grows that family into a nation, into the nation of Israel and that nation of Israel is taken into captivity in Egypt and they're ruled over by this oppressive pharaoh and what is the sign of pharaoh that like sits on his crown it's a serpent, it's a snake there's this ongoing battle between seed and snake all throughout the biblical narrative and it comes this moment with the birth of Jesus when God says my seed has finally come into the world And there's this very heated battle between the serpent and between the seed, between Jesus. It happens when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, and Jesus overcomes the temptation of Satan, and his power is limited in that moment. And then there's a day when the serpent thinks he has won the victory because Jesus is hanging on a cross and he dies. Jesus is put in a tomb. And it looks like God was wrong, it looks like evil has won. But that's not the end of the story. But three days later, Jesus rises up from the dead, and what he does in that moment is he crushes the head of the serpent. Okay, how many of you are World War II buffs? And you guys know I love history, so just stay with me here, okay? That that moment, that moment of Jesus' resurrection, that is, that's like D-Day, okay? That is, the, that is the pivotal battle in this war between the serpent and the seed. And from that moment, the victory is guaranteed. From that moment, what happened in Berlin and, and the conquering of Berlin was inevitable, but there were still lots of battles that had to be fought. That's what we see in this passage is that, that Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, but there are all kinds of battles that unfold before this final culmination. And as the church, we live in the midst of that battle, the ongoing battle between the seed and the snake. That's us, the church, as we resist the power of evil and the enemy in the world. But there will be a day when that battle ends. And that's what we see in Revelation 20, when we zoom up and all of these forces are surrounding the city of God. And, and it reminds me of Lord of the Rings. Okay? At the end of The Lord of the Rings, there's this, there's this moment when the captains of the West are standing against all of the hosts of Mordor. That the forces of good are arrayed against the forces of evil, and the forces of evil are so much greater. They surround them, and it looks like a hopeless battle like a fierce battle, but a hopeless battle. And then, in a moment, the enemy is defeated. Now, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know it's because the ring got thrown into Mount Doom. We don't have to go into all of that, okay? What you need to know is in that moment, the enemy was defeated, was done away with, was cast out, never again to bother the people of the world. And all of the forces that had been arrayed against everything good and beautiful and true in the world, they lost their will, they fled, and they ran away. And the battle here in Revelation is even more anticlimactic than that. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. That's, the, that's Armageddon. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's over. Oh, and friends, that is good news, isn't it? Because here's the first thing that Revelation will not let us forget. The first thing that Revelation will not let us forget is that there is real evil in the world. We love to live in a Pharisee, a Pharisee, well, a fantasy, fairy tale world, especially here, kind of in like in the air conditioned bubble that we we live in in the United States, with all of our wealth and all of our power and all of our security. And we like to pretend that evil doesn't, isn't a real thing. That if everyone just went to a little bit more therapy, everything would be fine. That's the way we think and talk about the world sometimes, as if a little bit of therapy could fix everything. Guys, the world is so much more evil than that, isn't it? And there are moments where evil breaks into our world and we are forced to reckon with that. That's what happened in Israel last Saturday, as evil broke in and we had to reckon with that. There is evil in the world. And some of you have had evil visit your world and punch its hand in much earlier than that. It's real. And Revelation will not let us forget it. But Revelation also reminds us that evil will not have the final word. But at the end of time, God will once and for all conquer his enemy. But he, God is intent on getting the hell out of earth. Because what is hell? it's represented by satan it's the power of evil and darkness right death and chaos and destruction and god says that has no place in my world and there will be a day when it is driven out and satan is cast out and he's actually the wrath of god is poured out on him for all of the destruction and death and evil he has brought into this world praise god that day is coming That's the first image that that John gives us that that strengthens our hearts, that calls us to persevere in the face of great evil, to not forget that it exists, not stop our ears or our eyes to it, but to acknowledge it and to hope in the God who promises that he will overcome it. To not shrink back, but to stand boldly in the face of it. But God's judgment, the separation, it's not over. It doesn't end there. There's there's another powerful image of separation that John gives us in this passage, and it comes in verses 11 through 15. I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them we've been in the throne room plenty of times as we've unpacked this book of Revelation. And every time we're in it, what we see is this multitude, this myriad of people and angels and creatures, and it's a lot going on, but they're all worshiping God. Hallelujah, praise God. It's a noisy, it's a raucous environment, and there are rainbows of living color, whatever that means, right? It's this beautiful, noisy, joyful scene. That's not what we see here that we see the throne of God and it's silent. And heaven and earth run from God's presence because heaven and earth, this creation knows it has been tainted by sin. And every person who has ever lived is standing there before the throne of God. There is no person so great that their privilege allows them to escape judgment and there's no person so small that they are allowed to escape judgment. That everybody matters and is standing before God. And these books are opened. And these books are the, are the evidence on which God is going to make his judgment or his separation. That's what judgment is. It's separation. It's getting the hell out of earth. And Jesus himself talks about this separation often in his ministry. When he talks about dividing the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the unrighteous from the unrighteous, it's all throughout his teaching. And it'll be done on what's written in these books. That's what we would expect, that God's going to judge based on the evidence of how we have lived our lives. Let me tell you what is in these books. Every text you have ever sent is in these books. Every email you've ever written and then deleted is in the book. Every email you've ever written and then sent is in the book. Every Facebook post that you have since gone back and deleted from your Facebook because it's embarrassing or inappropriate, it's in the book. Every tweet. But it's more than that, it's every thought you have ever thought. It's every careless word you have ever said. It's every careful word that you have chosen that was full of hate. It's all in the book. Everything you have done and everything you've left undone. Do you want to let people in this room read that book? I don't. And that's why there's silence in heaven. Because these books are open and people know I'm gonna have to confront that and all they can feel is the shame of what they have done because what they know is true, what we know is true is the hell that God is getting out of the earth is also in our own hearts that we carry hell with us and that we have over and over again breathed it out against people that are made in God's image and breathed it out into this world that he loves, that we have sown hell into the earth and that when God comes to bring judgment and he gets the hell out of the earth, he's gotta deal with us It's a terrifying thought. Now, friends, it is so natural for us to have an emotional reaction against that. To think, I don't like that. And because I don't like it, I'm going to write it out of the Bible. And you've got to know that when you write it out of the Bible, you're crossing out a lot of the Bible. The Bible doesn't make sense without this theme. And there are plenty of people who will stand up and tell you that, no, you can, well, this word and that word, and you can shift this and do that. And guys, it's just not true. This is what the Bible teaches. And we are a people who are accustomed to being led by our beliefs. That if we feel that it's true, it must be true. The Bible doesn't engage in that kind of fantasy reasoning. That God tells us what is true and he asks us, he calls us to wrestle with that. And the things that we prefer to, we pretend that hell, we want to pretend that hell doesn't exist just by crossing it out. God wants to deal with the fact that hell exists. He calls us to acknowledge it. And then he tells us, and I've done something about it. He says, I have not let the power of hell conquer. I have come and I have done something about sin. I have made a way that when you stand in judgment, you can stand. And that even now, it's possible to be confident in front of God about what will happen on judgment day. Even now. God has dealt with it, and the way he has dealt with it is this other book that gets opened up, the book that's called the book of life. And you know what is written in that book? It's another record of a life. But the life that is captured in that book is a life that is perfect. A life in which the person who lived that life never disobeyed God, who kept his law perfectly, and who never omitted any good deed he was called to do, who did all of them who had perfectly submitted himself to the will of God and who lived in overflowing love to the people around him when that love felt gentle and when that love called him to be angry but lived that love perfectly a love he says that drove him to give his life for his friends and that's the life of Jesus is in that book and at the front of that book uh, is a dedication page what that means is that when your name is found written in that book, that when the records are opened, that book is placed on top of yours. And the record that's read is not your record, but Jesus' record. And friends, that is, what is, that is what is so hard to believe about the gospel. To believe in judgment, that is so normal. That is a thing that people have been believed in for centuries. It's a thing that you believe in. And you know how I know you believe in it? because I know how much you judge other people, because I know how much I judge other people. And every time we judge each other, what we confirm is that we know that ultimately judgment is a good thing, but what we also do is we judge incompletely. But there is one who is coming who will judge not incompletely, but with all the facts and who always judges justly. No, what is hard for us to believe is in grace. And we know it's hard to believe in because we know it's so hard to give to each other. We see it when Jesus teaches that that is what elicits the most aggressive response against him is his teaching about grace. That Jesus has come not for people who have it all together but for people who are desperate and needy for him. And we want to talk a big game about how much we love it but friends, that same resistance to it is in our own hearts. That's the strange work of God that's hard for us to believe but he has done it because of his great love for us, for his people that he would do what is so unnatural to us and he would give himself even for his enemies in an act of great love so that we can stand before God even now when we think about judgment and know that it is, is Jesus' record that will be read instead of ours. Praise God. That's the invitation of the gospel is come, come, he's calling, come and see it. That's why we live in this period between the two advents where there's so much suffering and evil in the world because Jesus is saying, I'm holding this space open. I'm waiting to judge evil because I have people I'm calling to myself. Come on. And if you were here this morning and you don't know Jesus, the call is, man, come on. And don't worry. There's not going to be this like high-pressure altar call where we ask you to raise your. That's not what we're going to do this morning. But what I do want to underline for you is that there is urgency in this call to come, oh, to come and to know and to trust Jesus. So how do we live? How do we live in response to this? to the hope that Jesus is going to conquer evil, to the confidence that we have that one day when we stand before God in judgment, it will not be our record that's read, but it will be Jesus' record. How do we live? Friends, in this time, in between the first and the second coming of Jesus, we live in worship and we live in witness. That's what he's calling us to. In this period that this passage calls the millennium, we can get in, there are lots of people who love Jesus, who believe a lot of different things about what the millennium means. I will just tell you what I believe that it means is that even now, Jesus is ruling and reigning. He is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he is the king of this earth. And that evil, while it exists, is limited here. That evil does not have greater power than Jesus has on this earth. And we see that in the victory that the church has even as it proclaims the gospel to the furthest corners of the earth. That there are people all across the world, even in countries and places that are hostile to the gospel, who are following Jesus. All across the world. And then Satan does not, has not, and will never have the power to stamp that out. That's how we know that Satan's power is limited because he would like to destroy the church and he can't do it. He's tried a lot of times throughout history. You can study it. But we're still here. And now his power is limited. And so we live in this in-between time as a people of worship and of witness. That's what we are doing here on Sunday mornings as we are gathering together to worship God and remind each other that there is no other power in our stories that is greater than this power. There is no story greater than this story that your depression and anxiety does not have more power than this story. When we come here and worship God, we make those stories obey the story of Jesus. That your sin and what you have done that you think disqualifies you. It is not the greatest story. That Jesus' story is greater than that story. That the suffering and the pain that you have experienced is not the greatest story. That Jesus' story is greater than that story. And when we come together and we worship God, that's what we are reminding each other when we gather in small groups across the city, that's what we're reminding each other. And as that truth sinks into all the cracks and crevices of our lives and we live life next to each other, that's what we're reminding each other. Do you know that it would be possible for you to talk about Jesus with other people who love Jesus outside of small group on Sunday morning? I will tell you, even sometimes for me, it's hard to do. We had some friends over on Friday night. And I asked the question, hey, where in your life have you seen Jesus this week? And I thought, here we go, the pastor thing, right? No, it's not a pastor thing. It's just a Christian thing. That's what it means to follow Jesus, is to invite each other into testifying to the places that we see Jesus operating in our day-to-day lives. And as we bear witness about that with each other, as we worship God together over those stories, we strengthen our muscles so that we can go out into the world and proclaim that Jesus The Jesus that even now is at work in our world. The Jesus that even now is pushing back against the forces of darkness and evil. The Jesus that even now is loving people and bringing them to himself and healing them. That's the Jesus that we are worshiping. That's the Jesus that we're bearing witness to and that we take that witness out and declare out into the world. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that you uh, have not left us to ourselves. Lord, that you uh, have desired to get hell out of this world. And Lord, that you have made a way that we in you can be forgiven for our sin and be with you in the new heavens and new earth that you're bringing. And God talking about this idea of judgment day, it feels so far away, Lord, so scary. Jesus, we pray that you would make it real to us and that as we worship, we would get to participate in the confidence that we have in light of that day because of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.